I came across uh, an article that had a number of, of statements from kids about what God is like. They were asked, what is God like? And elementary age children came up with some interesting ones. I took a few of these and uh, the one of what is God like, one child said, God is like the ultimate superhero, but with a really long beard and no cape. <laughs> Someone else said, God is like a secret ninja, always watching, but never seen. And then another child said, God is like the ultimate referee, making sure everyone plays fair in life's game. Or the one that says, God is like a big, warm hog that makes everything better. Or the one, this one I like, God is like a cosmic Santa Claus, giving out presents to the nice kids and timeouts to the naughty ones. Someone else said, God is like a wise old grandparent, always watching over us with love. God is like a cool dude wearing flip-flops because he's all about keeping it casual and chill. This is my very favorite. God is like a master chef because only someone awesome could create pizza and ice cream. Now, how would you answer what is God like? Many of us would answer that he is a loving, caring God that we can go to like Daddy, Abba, Father. He's approachable and close. He sent Jesus, and so we can have a relationship with him. He's near, and, and we love his goodness, grace, forgiveness, and kindness, and compassion. Others might emphasize he is a holy God who is completely separate from who we are. He's the creator of the universe. He exists independent of us in time and space. He's holy and righteous. He is a great God, powerful and holy. And some of us would emphasize one to the detriment of the other, and yet the scriptures give us kind of both sides of God. Sometimes we get consumed with the God we want or the God we think is out there and we miss out on who God actually is. The scriptures tell us who our God is. And we're gonna to see today, as we go back into the life of David, we're going to see from this great hero of the faith who lived a thousand years before Jesus walked on planet Earth, we're gonna see some of these qualities about God come out in three stories in David's life. If you wanna open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter five, 1 Samuel chapter 5, or 2 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 6 through chapter 6, verse 23. There's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11, uh, 4 through 16, 3. It really covers the same stories, and some of what I'll share will come from there, and it gives us a complete picture of these three things that happened. Remember last week we saw how David became... King of Israel, he'd been anointed king 22 years earlier and been on the run from Saul. And then even after Saul died, there was a bloody civil war for seven and a half years where he only was king over his own tribe, one of the tribes of, of Israel. And then finally, in the first five verses of 2 Samuel 5, he becomes king over all 12 tribes. And now he is who God said he would be as a leader of God's people with a heart aimed at God's heart. And in the three stories we're going to look at in 2 Samuel 5 and 6, we're going to get a good glimpse at the God who is. And so we're going to talk about the God who is as we look at 2 Samuel 5 and 6. And as we do, I have this challenge for us today. Stop settling for the God you want or the God you think exists and find your deepest satisfaction in the God who is. Some of us really can relate to and need and want a good God. Some of us really relate to and really see this great and distinct and holy God. But if we want deep satisfaction in our relationship with God as the followers of Christ, 
We have to embrace God for who he is, not just who we want him to be or think him to be. Let me ask you this question. Are you looking for the God you want or the God who is? There might be a difference. There might be a difference. When you consider God from a finite human perspective, it can be a bit overwhelming, but it can leave us in incredible awe of who he is. Billy Graham said, finite minds cannot begin to comprehend an infinite God. The wisest theologian has only begun to understand the nature of God. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the greatness of our God lies in the fact that he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. A.W. Tozer said, it is, it is a great thing to know the power of God, and it is a great thing to know the love of God, but if you know both the power and love of God, you will know God's glory. God's glory is the sum total of who he is and all of his characteristics and all of his being and all of his attributes. So if you find yourself at times just consumed with the goodness of God and ignoring the greatness of God, or you find yourself consumed with the greatness of God and ignoring the goodness of God, can I encourage you today to step back and get a fresh glimpse of the God who is as we see him in the life of David and the life of his people, Israel, a thousand years before the life of Christ here on earth. We're gonna look first at two stories. Two stories in the life of David right after he becomes king. Actually, all three stories happen probably within a year or two of each other, the stories we're gonna look at today. The first one talks about the goodness of God. The second one talks about the goodness of God. The psalmist himself, David said in Psalm 107.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. He is indeed a good God. We have a gracious God. Now, as I mentioned, David had become king of all 12 tribes now. And he sets his mind, and he goes to the Lord, setting his mind on taking a city in the Canaanite land that God has brought them into after their 40 years of wandering, led by Moses, Joshua brought them across, and God took the 12 tribes and gave them different parts of the land, and they drove the Canaanites out. And they took back the land that had been given to their ancestor, Abraham. And each tribe was given a section, and right in the middle was this city on top of a mountain. It was of the people of Jebus. It was a Jebusite city. We know that city today is Jerusalem. David would rename it that. But it was right in the middle of the 12 tribes, and none of the tribes have been able to conquer this city. It's been 400 years they've been trying and never been able to because it was a fortress with huge walls and no group of people have been able to penetrate this fortress. David sets aside on that because he believes this city sitting in the midst of all the tribes and that he would name Jerusalem could be what Jerusalem means, a place of peace. After seven and a half years of a bloody civil war, this could unite the tribes. This could unite the people together as one nation with their hearts aimed at God. And so he focuses on that. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem, attacked the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David can't get in here. There's no way. This is, we have an impenetrable fortress. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from terraces inward. 
And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So David sets out with his people, the 12 tribes, to conquer the city. They cry down from the walls, we got our lame and our blind up here protecting us. You can't take this. You can't conquer us. Nobody's been able to do that. It's interesting that they taunt him with the blind and the lame. When Jesus walked on earth, he only performed two miracles inside the walls of Jerusalem recorded in the Gospels. He healed the blind man and he healed the lame man to kind of speak back to the ancient curse of these people on his people and on David. But David says, you're gonna to have to use, and it's a mysterious word, it wasn't understood until about 150 years ago, a word he uses here that means pipe or channel or water shaft. He says, in the First Chronicles passage, we learn that he says, whoever can go up and use this resource of this water pipe, that person will then lead my armies. Now, um, an institute that works with the city of David that's seeking to do archaeological work in that area of Jerusalem where the ancient city of David would have been, has put together a great video that explains what happened when a man named Joab, who is the nephew of David, the son of David's sister, does what David says and uses the water shaft to help conquer this city. And this, is, this video gives you part of what we see in 2 Samuel 5, in First Chronicles, and even what we understand archaeologically, watch this video. About 3,000 years ago, David, son of Jesse, is crowned king of Israel. This is the beginning of the royal house of David. David decides that Jerusalem, positioned at the heart of the Israelite territory, will be the capital of his kingdom. But Jerusalem is a powerful and intimidating Canaanite city, and until David's time, no tribe has been able to conquer it. Now once again, confident of their fortifications, the Jebusites take up positions on the city walls. The young King David challenges the complacent enemy. He is determined. This time, Jerusalem must fall. אני עומד על המדרון המזרחי של עיר דוד. כאן, בשנת 1995, מצאו הארכיאולוגים פרופסור רוני רייך ואלי שוקרון שרידים של מגדל ענק שנבנה על ידי הכנענים לפני כ-4,000 שנה. האבנים האלה, שכל אחת מהן שוקלת מספר רב של טונות, הן חלק ממגדל עצום שנבנה ממש כאן בסמוך למעיין הגיחון. You shall not come in here. The Jebusites mock David. They station blind and lame men on the city walls. The message is clear. The city is so strong that even the blind and the lame can easily defend it. David knows that in the ways of mistakes, he won't be able to kill the city. He needs to think outside the box. His head is already he promises the esteemed position of head of the army to the soldier who dares to volunteer for this dangerous mission and succeeds. One man rises to the challenge, Joab ben Zeruya, a tough and daring soldier. But what is the mission? In his challenge, David uses two mysterious words, Veiga batsinor. What is this tsinor that David is referring to? Thousands of years later, 
a fascinating discovery was made, shedding light on the mysterious Tsinor. In 1867, the archaeologist Captain Charles Warren crawled through a tunnel near the Gihon Spring. About 20 meters from the spring, Warren discovered a vertical shaft that rose to a height of 13 meters above his head. With great effort, Warren climbed to the top of the shaft, where, to his amazement, he discovered that the tunnel continued to rise steeply until it reached the city above. אורן הבין מיד שלפניו מפעל מים סודי שנבנה לפני אלפי שנים. התכנון היה מתוחכם ביותר. הכנענים ידעו שנקודת התורפה של איראן היא המעיין שנמצא מחוץ לחומות העיר. They built a great citadel around the spring and dug a tunnel down from the city above to the citadel surrounding the spring. He sends Joa Ben Surya through this tunnel to infiltrate the city. After Job exits the tunnel, he runs down to the city gates. The Jubicide soldiers fail to notice him. Job reaches the city gates and opens them with great force. Before the Jubicides can grasp what has happened, David's soldiers burst through the gates and take the city by surprise. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. That is such a great summary of what happened when David took the Jebusite city. Joab becomes the general of his armies. And by the way, if you plan to join us on our trip to the Holy Land in February of 2024, just coming up, we'll actually be in those places you saw lighted with handrails. And uh, if you haven't signed up for that trip and you're interested, you can go and check that out on our website. But it's, it's an incredible thing that God blessed David with this city that was in the center. There was no tribe city, so they would share it together so it helped unify their peace as a nation. And after that bloody time of the Civil War, it brought them together. Then we read in the next couple of verses about how David was blessed with a new palace. Hiram, the king of Tyre, helped provide the resources for that. David's family grows. This is a time of God's goodness in David's life and the nation of Israel. And you can see and sense the goodness of God in this story. There's a second story that happens next that also speaks of the goodness of God. The Philistines, these arch enemies of David and the Israelites, hear that David is king now and he's taken the Jebusite city and they think they better attack now while he's still a fledgling king and the government's still getting together. And so they come to the valley of Raphaim, which is three to four miles southwest of Jerusalem. And they come to this valley because the next stage would be leave the valley and attack the city. And David goes to the Lord. Remember, whenever David goes to the Lord for answers, he is on a good path. When he does things on his own, he's on a bad path. What a great principle for us in life, right? 
And the text says in chapter 16, verses 17 to 21, that David requ requested of the Lord, inquired of the Lord, what should I do? The Philistines are camped. Should I go up against them? The Lord says, yep, go, go straight at them, and I will give you the victory. And they get the victory. They win. They conquer the Philistines. Philistines kind of lick their wounds. They step back, and maybe a mere couple of months later, they come at him again. And now as they come at him in these verses, they... He goes again to the Lord, and he says, Lord, should I go again against them? They're in that same valley again. Here they come again. And the Lord changes the plan. Look at verse 22. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. He answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. He chased them out of the area, and he then has peace, not only with the Philistines, but no one else, the Amalekites, nobody else that have been the enemies of Israel will mess with him because he's defeated them twice, he's taken the Jebusite city. But notice God the first time said to him in the first battle against the Philistines here in 2 Samuel 5, said, go straight against them, give him the victory. Gives him a great victory. Philistines come again. David says, should I go up again against them? And the Lord says, go around behind them this time in front of the poplar trees. And when you hear the rustling in the top of the trees, like armies marching, then you know that I'm with you and going before you and go and you'll have the victory. And he gets the victory. Now, what's interesting is in the ancient world of that era, you know, area, the... Um, there were these low bushes, kind of like our tumbleweeds here, those kind of bushes. And when mar armies would march, especially when uh, it was in the spring and those bushes were full, kind of like the same way our patterns of uh, things get green and they go brown. Uh, but when they were green and armies would march, you could hear them coming sometimes because of the ruffling of the bushes. And so that would be a familiar sound, but you wouldn't hear rustling in the top of the trees. But God's saying the angel armies are gonna be moving out ahead of you to give you the victory, and you're gonna hear them moving in the tops of the trees, and the victory will be yours, and he gets the victory. Now let me make a few observations about the goodness of God in these two stories. God giving him the Jebusite city, blessing his family, giving him the victory over the Philistines, even with those angel armies marching out before him. What do we learn about the goodness of God? You see, our kind and loving God extends to us the same things that were extended to David in these two stories. He extends to us as the believers of Christ, the followers of Jesus today, these same things, but we have these things now in Christ as his followers. First of all, our loving and kind God extends to us his presence. He tells David, I'm gonna be with you when you go against the Philistines. He was with him when he went against the Jebusites. Jesus promised his followers, as you go out and, and take the good news to the world, I am with you till you're with me to the end of the age. Then he sent the Holy Spirit, not just to be beside us, but to be inside of us, so that every follower of Christ has the Spirit of God in them. You can go nowhere where God isn't with you always. What a precious gift from God. What a precious gift from God, his presence. No matter where we are or where we go, he is with us. What a gift from our good and loving and kind God. Secondly, our kind and loving God extends to us in Jesus, the one who has sent for us, promises that apply to our lives today that are found in the scriptures. 
his promises. He made promises to David that he'd make of him a great nation, of him there'd be no end to his reign. He promised him the victory over the Philistines. No matter what happens, he will always do what he says he will do. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God says in his word a promise to us, we can believe it. The first promise we have to latch on to as human beings, fallen before a holy God in need of a savior, in need of being rescued and saved, is the promise found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you will be rescued. Not by your own good works, not by your religiosity, not because you're better than others or you've stacked up your good stuff over your bad stuff, but through Jesus. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ as your personal savior, there is a clear promise from God. He says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If today you call on Jesus as your savior, I guarantee you he will forgive you, give you a relationship with him now and forever. If you haven't believed that promise, believe that promise so you can experience all the others that God offers you as his child. I'll be in the lobby for a few minutes. I'm catching a flight later today and I'll need to be out there for a shorter period, but I'm there to point you to a staff member that can help you. Our care and prayer team will be down front after the service. You can talk to them about any need. You can say, I need to know that promise that I am saved, that I am in Christ, that I've been rescued by him. You can even, if you say, I gotta communicate right now, or you're online, you can just text the name Jesus. Just that is the body of the text, the number 58568. The number below me on the screen. Just type that number in as a text and just put Jesus and we will respond to you and follow up with you because we want you to know that precious promise that if you call the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Maybe you say, I've done that. I know that promise. Well, then there are dozens, if not hundreds of promises God has for you. I mentioned to you that I've created the website aimyourheart.com for this series. And that video you saw earlier, I'll put on there of how David took the Jebusite city. But already on there is a resource regarding the promises of God. Love Worth Finding, a ministry of, of a man who's now with the Lord, Adrian Rogers. This ministry put together a website on the promises. And you can pick and look at promises thematically that apply to your life today, that you need today. You can also take their 52-week challenge. Once a week, they'll send you a list of promises that'll help you know the goodness of God through the promises. What God says he will do, he will do. That's a part of the goodness of our God. Our kind and loving God extends to us his presence, his promises, thirdly, his provision. His provision, he provided for David the palace, he provided for David the resources of the heavenly armies to conquer the Philistines. No matter what we think we should have, he gives us what we need. He's not necessarily giving us our whims, our dreams, the things we think are important, but according to his sovereignty and his plan, he knows our needs. The Apostle Paul told the Philippian church that he meets all of our needs in Christ Jesus. He takes care of us. He will provide. That's a part of the precious goodness of our God. Fourthly, his power. He gives us his power. Some of you are facing things that you just need the strength to get up and move through those things, to go through those procedures, those tests, to go to that counselor, to deal with that marriage problem, to deal with the things at work. You need his strength. No matter how impossible something seems, he can make it happen. 
Sometimes he uses very practical things, like a water shaft that ends up inside the city. Sometimes he uses the angel armies to give us power and strength miraculously. But he will empower us. Paul told that Philippian church, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He gives us in his goodness his power. And fifthly, he gives us his peace. He gives us his peace. No matter how chaotic life is on the outside, he offers us a crazy calm on the inside. You know what happens when he defeats the Philistines? Things get really calm because nobody wants to mess with David, king of Israel, and his armies. God gives him a peace for years. And God wants to give us a peace even in the midst of the noise of our lives. Paul told that same church, Philippi, he said, don't get anxious or upset or worried about the things of life. Take those things to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And then he says, then you will experience a peace that passes all human understanding. In the midst of the noise and chaos of our lives, we take our problems and we throw them on Jesus. God promises us a peace on the inside, a crazy calm we can't explain to other human beings. It only comes from God in the midst of the chaos of life. Oh, our God is a good God. He was good to David in these two stories. He's good to us in our day-to-day lives. Maybe you so focus on the greatness and holiness of God that you miss how he has approached us and come to us and reached out to us and extends to us love through his son and he offers us his presence, his promises, his provision, his power and his peace. God loves you. No matter how you feel or how your life goes, nothing can change that. I love how author Philip Yancey puts it. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. He is a good God. And if you've struggled with seeing him as a good God, can I encourage you today to open your heart and ask God to show himself to you as a loving, caring God. Now maybe you struggle to see the greatness, the holiness, the justice, the wrath, the truth of who God is. The third story, again, these happen in pretty quick proximity. David gets this great victory. He comes to peace. And then we see a story of the greatness of God. In chapter 6, the story of the greatness of God. Psalm 8610, the psalmist cries out, David cries out, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. When we talk about the greatness of God, we're talking about how he is self-existent, stands outside of time and space. He doesn't need anyone or anything to survive or exist. He is completely independent. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is holy, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly distinct and different from us totally distinct and different from us. He is a powerful and holy God. And David experiences that in a story that's found here in chapter six. If you'll look at chapter six, verse one, all this peace, David has this thought. We need God's presence in the center of God's people again. David again brought together all the young men of Israel. That means fighting men, armies, soldiers. He brought together soldiers, 30,000 soldiers. He and all his men went to Belah, to Judah, to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, some of you, when you think ark, you're thinking an ark like this, a boat with animals on it. The word ark in Hebrew is the idea of a box of safety. And yes, the ark was a box of safety for Noah and his family and those animals. 
But there's another ark that's mentioned in Scripture. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It was given to God, by God to the Israelites as they left Egypt and were heading back to this promised land. It was a box of safety. It was to be at the center of the tabernacle, the place of worship, place of the priests and the sacrifices. In the Holy of Holies, this represented the intimate express presence of God with his people. Now, God is everywhere always equally at the same time, but he can make his express presence known and experienced by humanity, and he made his presence there between the two angels on the top of this box inside that Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle would be set up in the center of wherever they encamped. Even when they moved into the land, it was in the center of the people in Shiloh for a number of years. But it hasn't been at the center of God's people now as David has now conquered the Philistines, he's conquered the Jebusites, he has Jerusalem in the center of the people. It hasn't been in the center of the people for over 100 years. As a matter of fact, several decades earlier in a battle with the Israelites, the Philistines claimed the ark. The ark, again, represented the express presence of God and between those cherubim was like the throne of God on earth. Inside the box, by the way, I failed to mention were the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the rod, just the stick that budded before Pharaoh to prove that God was gonna break Pharaoh and cause him to let his people go. And then there was a jar of manna, the food that God provided them in their wandering every day to remind them of God's presence with them. Those three items were inside the box, kept there. The Philistines had taken the ark away in battle as part of their victory prize. But it soon caused a lot of death and destruction in the Philistine land. And one day, without any conversations, any negotiations, they snuck it back across the border and got to the nearest Israelite village and said, here, take this, we don't want it anymore. And it's been in that place for decades. And David now knows we've got Jerusalem, the place of peace. We need God's presence in the center of the people. Saul had turned his back on God. We need God to be at the center of everything. He takes 30,000 soldiers to bring this box from the fringe border town all the way into Jerusalem to give it this place of priority so that they can focus on the presence of God in the center of their, their group. Verse three, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up from the house of Abinadab. By the way, it's to be carried not on a cart according to Moses' law. It's to be carried by the tribe of Levi, the priests, not by soldiers. Brought it up from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. With the ark of God on it and Ohio walking in front of it, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. There is this celebration. His heart is just to bring the the, the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of God's people. They've got this city. They've been given victory. There's peace, and they've experienced the goodness of God, and with all good intention, they want to bring it back. It says that with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals, the band is playing, and they are dancing. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took a hold of the Ark because the oxen stumbled. A little stone caused the Ark to stumble, on the cart, he thinks it's gonna slide off. He reaches out to grab it, touches it. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. No one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be picked up with poles by priests, not on a cart. 
Therefore God struck him dead and he died there beside the ark of God. Verses eight through 11, we read about how David is frustrated, he's angry. He just says, where's the nearest town? He found a guy named Obed-Edom and he said, hey, by the way, this is gonna stay at your house. Can you imagine me and that guy? Really? He probably kept like 100 yards away from this box at all times. But then we read Obed-Edom and his family were blessed by the presence of the ark. Verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So he's gonna move it again. Remember what happened last time, David? But he does things differently. In the three months, he's been studying, what does the law say about how we're supposed to handle this box? Oh, it's supposed to be carried by priests on poles who don't get near it. Things change. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, and First Chronicles tells us it was Levite priest, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. He, he dressed almost priest-like. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. There's excitement. But notice it says there in verse 13, after he had they had taken six steps to carry this thing one, two, three, four, five, six. They stop, almost like a Sabbath. And he offers up a bull and a calf. They're following the Old Testament law. By the sacrifice, he's saying, God, I'm serious about this. We're doing this your way. Not just my good intentions, but I'm walking in obedience to you. We're serious about this. Now, scholars are divided. Some believe that every six steps in the 10 miles from where Obed-Edom's house was to Jerusalem, every six steps, he sacrificed. Those scholars would say that then that was a very bloody road all the way to Jerusalem. And they emphasize that Hebrews 4 says, the blood of bulls and goats only covers sin, only the sacrifice, the final lamb of glory, Jesus' sacrifice can truly take away the sins of the world. He was the final sacrifice. Other scholars would say, no, he only did it the one time after six steps to show his, his faithfulness and his, his desire to obey God. I lean toward that one, although the other one preaches better. <laughs> Probably they stop and say, God, we're serious about this this time. It's not just our bringing soldiers to do this, to show our might. This is about you doing it your way. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This is Saul's daughter. He had turned, Saul had turned his back to God. She was given in marriage to David after he defeated Goliath two decades earlier. And she just hates David because even during the time he was on the run, she was given to another man in marriage by her father. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. He made a tent for it in the center of Jerusalem and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. At the beginning, at the end, he's saying, this is all about you, God, not about us. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now it's interesting, a loaf of bread, a cake of raisins, and a cake of dates does not sound that really party-like to us, right? But this is party food. 
And he gives it to all the families so the celebration can continue in their homes. They've, they've seen again the goodness of God, but they also witness the greatness of God, the power, the holiness of God. And for some of you, you're a bit uncomfortable with this story because you really like the loving, good God, the God who is gracious, but we struggle with the God who is holy and powerful, completely and holy, something distinct from us, dare I say, the dangerous God. And maybe you struggle with that. Well, you need to see God in all that he is so you can have deep satisfaction in not who you think God is or one part of God that you've grasped, but the whole of who God is. Our holy and powerful God expects from us. What does he expect from us? You say, well, who is he to expect or demand anything from me? I like how John Piper says it. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. God does not owe us anything. We owe him everything. In his greatness... We are to respond to his goodness and his greatness to us. What does our holy and powerful God expect from us? We see it in what David does in making the correction between the good intentions he had at first and the accuracy of his obedience to God's word when he did it right in bringing the ark into the center of worship and the center of life of the nation of Israel there in Jerusalem. Our holy and powerful God expects from us our fear and reverence. Our fear and reverence. And I'm not talking... Freddy Krueger, I'm not talking Jason, I'm not talking Chucky here, we're not talking horror, we're talking where we understand who God is and who we are, and there is a healthy fear of God because of who he is and who we are. And when we fear God, nothing else is frightening, <laughs> because we really get who he is, and it's liberating, because all other fears and anxieties begin to subside. The more we understand who God is and his goodness and his greatness, and we revere him, when we have a healthy fear of him, we fear nothing else. The book of Proverbs says that basic wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in life begins with a healthy fear of God and who he is. Secondly, our holy and powerful God expects from us our love and obedience our love and obedience. When we seek to follow his word, good intentions are never enough. David had all the good intentions of the world. 30,000 soldiers. He's doing it David's way. This is the way you do it. A lot of people will say, well, they're good intentions. They're sincere people. It's not about good intentions when it comes to our holy, righteous God. It's about the accuracy of our obedience to his word. We submit every aspect of our lives and our relationships, our attitude and our thoughts to God's word. Jesus said it in the upper room the night before he was crucified to his disciples. He said, if you love me, he doesn't say if you love me, you'll be nice to other people. If you love me, you'll raise your hands high in worship. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Part of our response to God is to love him and to prove our love to him. We walk in obedience to his word. Do you need to adjust your life and your response to the holy and powerful God by walking obedience? Thirdly, our praise and worship is what he expects from us. Our praise and our worship, when we genuinely respond to who God is, we fall down to honor him and stand up to praise him. I think when we get into God's presence, we see Jesus and we understand how holy he is and how much we fall short. We're going to be overwhelmed and we'll be humble and want to fall down in front of him. But then in that exact same moment, we'll be overwhelmed with his grace and we'll recognize what Jesus has done for us and we'll want to stand up and shout hallelujah. 
And so sometimes in worship, we, we have this humility and there's a calm and a quiet. And then sometimes as we open the service, there's excitement and praise. I love how Mercy Me puts it in the song, I can only imagine, will I dance before you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Both are going to be true. When we respond to the great God of the universe, the redeemer of our souls. Fourthly, our holy and powerful God expects from us our commitment and sacrifice. You saw all that worship and praise from David with his people and singing and dancing and shouting before the Lord. But then there's a commitment. He makes those sacrifices at the beginning after six steps, at the end. The sacrifice would be of the best they had. And so when we give to the Lord of our time, our talents, and our treasures, we're to give first and the best to God. Why? Because it demonstrates our priority in life. You want to know your priorities? And if you prioritize God, look at your calendar. Look at your credit card statement. Look at your checkbook. When we prioritize him over everything else, we are willing to give up anything else for him. And there is that response to the greatness and even the goodness of our God. Fifth and finally, our generosity and our service. He blesses the people. He gives them party food and sends them home to keep the party going at home, the celebration and worship. We gather together regularly on the weekends so we can shout and, and, and sing and praise our God together, and then we go home to continue what we experience together until we meet again and we get revived again and renewed and we celebrate in our homes. There's a generosity and a service that flows when we have a good understanding of who our God is and both his goodness and his greatness. Then generosity and service, loving our neighbors ourselves, flows out of our lives. When we make our lives all about him, we impact others for their good and his glory. You get a fresh glimpse of God and you get a balance, not just the one aspect. Maybe some of you just love his goodness. He's daddy, father, but you struggle with the greatness that he's powerful and holy. Maybe you love that he's powerful and holy, but you miss that he dearly loves you, intimately loves you. And you step back and see the God who is, not the God you want or the God you think exists, but the God who reveals himself in scripture. It results in us blessing the people around us with generosity and service. How are you responding to the holy, powerful God? This story of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the center of God's people is a great reminder of how we ought to respond to our God. Take a good look at your life. Do you lean a little bit toward the goodness and you don't like that greatness? Or do you lean toward the greatness you love the God of holiness and wrath and power and you miss, allow God to Broaden your perspective and see God for who he is, not who you want him to be. We tend to make God in our own image or in an image we want. I like how author Anne Lamott puts it. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. What's your response to the goodness and greatness of God? Isaiah in Isaiah 6 gets an opportunity to see God in his holiness in the throne room. He gets a glimpse of vision in Isaiah 6 of the worship going around the throne room of heaven 24-7. And he says, holy, holy, holy is what he hears, Lord God Almighty. The apostle John gets a picture of the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. He sees Jesus, the lamb, seated on the throne and all these incredible beings around the throne worshiping 24-7 
God in the throne room of heaven. He sees the goodness and greatness of God. Let me read that to you, Revelation chapter 4. I ask you to stand as I read this. Stand with me, please. And I want you to listen as I read this overview of this picture John has of the throne room of heaven, the goodness and greatness of God, as the beings around the throne, beings that we can't even comprehend. Worship God in all his glory. Therefore before me was a throne, John says, in heaven, and with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Each of the four living creatures had wings, which they could cover their eyes all around. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You just close your eyes for a moment. Just talk to the Lord. Maybe you see God as good, but you struggle to see God as great. He's kind, but you struggle to see him as holy. Maybe you see God as holy, but you struggle to see him as kind. Ask God to open your eyes to that part of God that maybe you struggle with the most. Even ask God to help you see the God who is, who he is, is revealed in scripture not just who you think he is in your mind or what you've heard from other people. That worship I just read about is going on right now around the throne of heaven. It never ends. Just talk to the Lord. Are you looking for the God you want or the God who is?